Millions of people are facing eviction just as the pandemic is surging, but the Democratic Party leadership in Congress and the Biden administration are shrugging their shoulders. We'll discuss this, the latest from the Olympics and the politics of the games, Peru's new left-wing government, and more. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the Socialist Program with Brian Becker. It's August 3rd, 2021. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. If you enjoy the show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther Ibarum, Walter Smolarik, and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Ivarum is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. Brian, the eviction moratorium from COVID ended this weekend. Let's start with that. The moratorium on evictions ended. The Biden administration did nothing until the last couple days to sound the alarm. The Supreme Court made it clear in its last five to four ruling that the CDC, Centers for Disease Control, mandated moratorium on evictions using health policy in a public health emergency as a pretext, that was not going to be extended or allowed by the Supreme Court. So Congress had to act, and everyone knew this was coming. And yet the leaders of Congress did nothing. That would be the Democrats. Of course, the Republicans are going to be an obstacle as they are and have been to any moratorium, even though it was enacted during the Trump administration, they did almost nothing, virtually nothing. Well, let's just call it nothing. They did nothing until it was too late. And then the millionaires who dominate Congress, you know, two thirds of the senators, two thirds of the 100 senators are millionaires. And I don't mean like low millions, like I'm talking multi, multi millions. They decided they were going on vacation. By the way, most of the people in the House are also very, very rich. There are no poor people in either chamber of the U.S. Congress. They all took a vacation, and now 6.3 million families, 6.3 million families are going to be subject to eviction. This is the biggest eviction housing crisis in the history of the country, and Congress went on vacation. That's us that, you know, the U.S. government and the U.S. media can talk all they want about how bad China is. But while 600,000 plus people died in the United States, 61 million lost their jobs and now 6.3 million families will be evicted. And it's not even that there's actually more two million homeowners. In addition to renters, two million homeowners are delinquent on their mortgage and the federal forbearance and state forbearance programs that were designed to mitigate the effect of people who could not pay their mortgage, those are also expiring. 
and they will be left homeless too. And many of them will lose everything they have, any equity they had, any of their savings tied up in their house, paid for in 15 or 30 year mortgages, wiped out. So you have 6.3 million families facing eviction. You also have 2 million homeowners facing foreclosure. The Delta variant is sweeping the country and Congress goes on vacation. Now, you know, in the beginning, Nicole, in your introduction, you said the Democrats shrugged their shoulders. You're right on that. But not everyone is shrugging their shoulders. In fact, people are fighting back. And one congressperson in particular, Representative Cory Bush from Missouri, has been sleeping in at the Capitol and using her sleep in at the Capitol as a protest against the ending of this moratorium on evictions to draw in other support. Esther, you and I were there on Sunday night, August 1st. That was day number three of Cori Bush's sit-in or sleep-in at the U.S. Congress. She was also joined by Reverend William Barber and Reverend Liz Theo Harris, the co-chairs of the Poor People's Campaign, which did their own action on Monday. So yes, Congress is doing nothing. The criminal Congress is doing nothing. The White House, which pretends to be the friend of working people, did nothing. But there are people who are fighting back. And those people who are fighting back have to be lifted up. They have to be joined in the effort. It's one thing to criticize, to condemn the failure of Congress, but we ourselves must act. We don't expect these millionaire politicians to give us anything. Anything that the people have ever won has been because they fought for it. And I think Cori Bush has to be saluted for her efforts. It was very inspiring when we were there Sunday night. And again, people were continuing to protest yesterday on Monday. Esther, this is a huge crisis. Even if Congress does nothing, people will have to fight. Absolutely. And you talked about everyone being rich in Congress. Well, Cori Bush is probably one person who knows what it is to be poor. And she knows what it is to be homeless or people say now unhoused. She lived with her two children in her car, you know, for a while because she could not afford a home. And she was doing this while she was working. So she was part of the working poor. So I'm, I'm thinking about this in the context of what we've been talking about on the show since the pandemic. And we've been talking about this patchwork response or no response at all to meeting human needs, as you've been describing. And so instead of the monthly checks like people received in Europe or Canada or blanket payments to cover rents and mortgages to help people stay home during the pandemic, uh, this moratorium on evictions was passed as if the money to pay back the rent or mortgage would kind of miraculously appear after the expiration date or after the pandemic disappeared. Like Trump would say, it's just going to disappear. It's just going to go away. Right. And so the action by Cori Bush to extend the moratorium is really a Band-Aid on top of this Band-Aid, but it's really a needed Band-Aid. And it's coming at the end of the line of many of these supports that were instituted during the pandemic. And I should say, you know, as you mentioned, that it's happening as this new Delta variant is starting to sweep throughout the country. 
So I did speak to her and I talked to her about her idea for pairing this idea of extending the moratorium to what we talked about, canceling the rents. And so she described her unhoused Bill of Rights. It's a federal resolution calling on Congress to permanently end the unhoused crisis by 2025. And that would invest $20 billion to be shifted from the fiscal year defense budget, which she noted is more than $754 trillion. So this is something like two or 3% of that budget to address the homelessness crisis. And she's not discouraged about the prospects for the bill. She, as an activist in Ferguson, she is used to the long haul fight. And this is what she said when I spoke to her. I came from the Ferguson movement where there was not this idea of like, this is what activism is and you have to meet these marks for it to be considered activism. And so for us, the work that we did was not short. It was long. We protested more than 400 days and we didn't still didn't see any change. So but what I did see was how when you're diligent and you're persistent, you can start to chip away at these things and you get to start to see some change. And so for me, with this resolution, this resolution is just a framework for people, for for us to be able to build legislation from. And it has, it's like 25 key points about what we need to see happen. And so that's what this is. This is about a bigger, a broader conversation on the fact that we have so many needs. We have so many needs that aren't being addressed because we don't want to address poverty head on. We don't want to uh, tackle poverty the way that we need to tackle poverty. And this is what this is doing. Right. And the Poor People's Campaign also came by on a Sunday night and it was very inspiring. Reverend William Barber was there and also the Reverend Liz Theo Harris, who talked about her experiences with the housing issue and kind of like what people need to do to collectively meet this moment. We were taking over abandoned houses because it is immoral and wrong to have more abandoned housing in this country than homeless people. Yes, ma'am. To have the average age of a homeless person as nine years old. Shame. Shame. To throw out more food than it takes to feed everybody. To have the world made of two-thirds water, and yet millions of families are losing their water. This is immoral and it's wrong and it's gonna take people like here standing up. And so you should know that people are watching. I think you do, but that's what it's gonna take. Reverend Liz Theo Harris and Reverend William Barber and Corey Bush and those hundreds of young people, mainly young people, who have been out in front of the east side of the Capitol for the past days, they're doing the right thing. They're organizing, they're mobilizing, they're fighting back. I posted some pictures from Sunday night on Facebook and also on Twitter. Most people really liked it, and quite a few people shared that. They were hopeful that people were fighting back. But then there were some people who responded, you know, the people who sort of live in social media world who, you know, habitate on social media platforms and have the wrong orientation. They were writing back, what's the point? What's the difference? It's too late. The Democrats are all sellouts anyway. Did you expect you were going to really make a difference? Et cetera, et cetera. And I wrote, it's always better to fight than to be on the sidelines. 
And it's always better to fight, to really be with the people, better to light a single candle than to curse the darkness, so to speak, because you never know how a struggle could develop. I mean, actually, the Biden administration says we can't use executive authority once again, as Trump did through the CDC or sort of use the CDC as a pretext in order to declare a moratorium. We don't have that authority. Only Congress can do that. And then Biden waited until the last minute before suggesting that Congress do something and said he favored Congress doing something. Well, when I posted some of this and there was a little bit of debate going on on these social media platforms, our friend and comrade from Detroit, Jerry Goldberg, who is a housing attorney, he represents tenants. He's been involved in the struggle for social housing and against all the foreclosures, the destruction of working class homes, the fact that so many tens of thousands, maybe it's more of people in Detroit, formerly an affluent city with an auto industry that's been sent overseas or automated by the capitalists. He's been in the trenches and he wrote on social media, Biden can declare an eviction moratorium through executive order. Now, this cuts against the grain of everything that we're being told and what the Biden administration is saying. He goes on, the Supreme Court dicta he hides behind deals with the CDC's authority, not the president's. A moratorium on evictions and foreclosures during, here's the key part, during periods of emergency was specifically upheld in the case of Home Loan and Building Association versus Blazedell in 1934, that would be during the Depression, where the court held during periods of emergency, the people's right to survive supersedes the contract clause of the Constitution. That's so important, which means that when there's a will, there's a way. And what was happening in 1934 when the Supreme Court decided that the people's right to survive supersedes the contract clause, meaning the contract with the landlord, it was when the working class was on the move. The Communist Party and the Socialist Party and other socialist organizations were growing. There was a general strike in Toledo, Ohio, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and in San Francisco, California, all in 1934. Plant seizures were starting to happen. Suddenly, the Supreme Court thought, wait, no, your right to survive supersedes capitalist contracts. Again, we have to fight. We should never not fight because it looks like we're going to lose. You fight and fight and fight until every battle has been waged. And if we lose, at least we will lose with the experience of having fought rather than having surrendered without a struggle. Anyway, Walter, this is a key part of class politics. I completely agree with you. And and to add one other element to that, another angle of this position, this crucially important position that we participate, not abstain from struggle like these, you know, none of us are arguing that the Democratic Party is not fundamentally in the enemy camp, right? That the Democratic Party fundamentally as an institution serves the interests of the rich and powerful. Of course, that's true. But within the enemy camp, Within the Democratic Party and similar institutions, frequently in politics, conflicts develop, internal contradictions, conflicts between liberal and right-wing wings or you know, progressive and conservative wings or those that are more connected to social movements and those that are more directly controlled by different 
arms of capital. These conflicts develop all the time. It's a natural, inherent part of politics. And those conflicts can be very good for people who desire the radical reorganization of society, of people who desire socialism. Let's take you know, the Bernie Sanders phenomenon, for instance. A version of this same debate played out when Bernie Sanders began to take off in 2015, 2016. Some people said, well, nothing good could possibly come of this. He's running as a Democrat. He's been in the Senate effectively as a Democrat for a long time. But clearly, his campaign galvanized social forces, galvanized millions and tens of millions of people whose politics developed far beyond the confines of the Democratic Party as became completely obvious in the subsequent years. I think it's the same basic logic at play here. Cori Bush is somebody who came from the grassroots social movement struggles. She is in Congress as a member of the Democratic Party. But what she's doing in this case, this sit-in, is exacerbating, deepening the conflicts within the Democratic Party such that it exposes the nature of the system to anybody who cares to watch, which is a lot, a lot of people, because this is such a gigantic crisis society is facing. So under those circumstances, why in the world would socialists, would radicals, would revolutionaries want to be absent from a situation like that? Walter, you're exactly right. And if anyone takes any look through history, these kind of contradictions always exist within different institutions of power. Most importantly, as Esther made it clear, the reason that Cori Bush was there basically by herself, I mean, she has some liberal allies in Congress, of course, but the reason she was there is that she's really different. It's not just that she's on the left wing of the Democratic Party. It's that she comes from the masses. She came from the struggle in Ferguson. She's this rare political entity who really comes from the poor and the working class. I've been doing sort of a survey of wealth in Congress, and the statistics are amazing. This is a body of plutocrats. I mean, in addition to the Republicans and the Democrats being ruling class parties, meaning even if working class people assume the presidency, for instance, they would still be part of a ruling class institution. That's true. But the fact that the Congress is so rich and it takes so much money to become a senator. The South Carolina race last time in 2020, it was $275 million for a Senate race. I mean, money completely dominates this institution. And we need to build our own resistance from below. We need to form people's organizations. And if on a rare occasion, somebody like Cori Bush is in a position of representation, say in Congress, all to the better. Anyway, let's go on to COVID. Of course, the Delta variant is destroying, again, sadly, tragically, different communities. And of course, most of the people who are being hospitalized and most of the people who are dying right now are people who, for one reason or another, did not get vaccinated. Nicole, uh, how the media presents this story is one thing, how we should understand the story of the unvaccinated actually is something quite different. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. There's a new poll out done by the Kaiser Family Foundation, and the New York Times this weekend wrote a really useful article about it um, and really you know, teased apart a lot of the data that I want to share with you. 
So essentially, there's two groups of people based on this survey, which I should add, again, it's the Kaiser Family Foundation. It's almost 2,000 respondents. They talked to people um, of all walks of life and really, it looks like did a really good job getting a lot of different respondents in there. And 2,000 is a lot of people usually for a survey like this. So there's two groups, you know, one who says they're really, really adamantly against getting the vaccine. This is like a hard no. That's disproportionately white, rural, evangelical, Christian, and politically conservative. Then there's a second group who are open to getting the shot, but are either waiting or they're in this moment of indecision or they want to see more data since, you know, it's emergency authorized and hasn't been authorized by the FDA or they want to see, you know, more data of, you know, how people react. And that's a broad range of people in this group. They tend to be nationality wise, more diverse group. And they're also a group that is much more in cities. They include more younger people, more Black people, more Latinos, and more people from the Democratic Party. And I'll say, too, the encouraging part is that second group um, is getting smaller and smaller as more and more people get vaccinated. That's mostly the group that's getting vaccinated right now. So I think the thing that's the most telling about this data So in this survey, the question askers asked about if you answered the survey and you're unvaccinated, what would motivate you and, you know, what would make you more likely to get vaccinated? And they split this out among the two different groups I just described. So among the people who that they're not sure they want to look at the data, 44 percent of that group of people is waiting for full FDA approval. You know, so there's all these news stories that are out that are like all these people really wanted was like a $20 gift card to Target. And that's enough to get people to come get vaccinated. I'm sure that's true for some people. We can get into the FDA piece in a second. I mean, it's really disgusting. Like the FDA is deeply under pressure to grant full approval. They have tons of data. They've had months and months and months to review. But, you know, one component of that is that one of the companies, Moderna, hasn't even finished their application process. So they've made the product. They're moving on to bigger and better and and more profit making places where people are desperate for vaccines, where We really need them to actually finish that application process and get it actually fully, you know, officially approved, even though we know it's safe. We know the emergency use authorization means it's safe and and a lot of people have taken it. But full FDA approval is a big deal. And then the Johnson & Johnson company hasn't even started the process. They haven't started the process at all. So Pfizer has started the process and has been approved for, you know, expedited approval. But the FDA has been dragging their feet on it, which is really ridiculous you know, a lot of scientists are coming out and saying like, this should already be fully approved. So that's one reason, especially among the group that wants to wait and see, you know, one of the reasons they're waiting is that the FDA hasn't fully approved it. Another thing that might make people be more likely to get vaccinated in that wait and see group, 46% of those people would be more likely to get vaccinated if they could get vaccinated from their personal physician. And that to me says we do not trust this healthcare system. And why should you? I mean, how many times do you go to an ER or to a new specialist or to a different doctor and you get charged an arm and a leg? How many times do you just get prescribed something and kicked out the door? I mean, this makes total sense to me. 46% of this group, almost half of this group, if they could just get the shot from their actual, their personal doctor, they would do it or they'd be much more likely to. Another thing that I thought was really notable is free transportation, 12% of people in the wait and see group, if there was just free transportation to physically get to the vaccine, 12% of that group, which is a lot lower than 44% for the FDA approval, but 12% of millions is a lot of people. All they need is free transportation to get there. I mean, this shows just how like, you know, deeply stressful so many people's lives are, I think. And then 
you know, one other thing here is even in the group, that first group I mentioned, the people who are adamantly against getting the vaccine, if they were able to get free transportation, 11% of the group that's adamantly against the vaccine would be more likely to get vaccinated. That's all it would take, free transportation to the vaccination itself. That is so telling to me about how little we actually serve the residents of this country, the people who live here and who are constantly in the media getting blamed for not being vaccinated, for you know spreading the Delta variant. There are some simple things here. Reading the media, you might, you know, it'd be fair to make the assumption that, you know, all the people who just couldn't go for convenience sake or were working or couldn't get there, that all those people had been vaccinated by now. And it's the people who are holding out, you know, ideologically who've been persuaded by the right wing that they don't need to get this vaccine. You know, you'd be it would make sense that you assume that that was the case. But that's clearly not the case. That is clearly not the case. You're right. This is a government failure. But then you blame the unvaccinated for being unvaccinated when, you know, we all know that what the government does and how it doesn't makes a difference. For instance, when I was growing up, nobody wore seatbelts. Like the first time people started wearing seatbelts, people were laughed at. I'm not joking. First time people started wearing seatbelts in the back seat, that was considered just a joke and funny. I mean, people could smoke cigarettes in bars. I mean, all of these rules and regulations including having young children have to be vaccinated to start the school year. I mean, how the government does things is the decisive element. And it's very easy to blame the, quote, backward masses for their backwardness, when in fact, what we're experiencing is another failure of the capitalist government. And I want to add another thing on the FDA applications, because, you know, this is just such a clear government failure. Again, the fact that these companies that have made so much money off of these vaccines and will continue to, Moderna and Johnson & Johnson, haven't even finished or even started their paperwork in some cases to get you know the full approval is just so disgusting. I mean, there's got to be something that the government can do about that to make that happen. But second of all, again, you know, Pfizer has had their application in for months. And the way these applications work, if you've already got your emergency authorization, that's essentially like the bulk of the data and the bulk of the information and the bulk of the paperwork and the bulk of the application for like the full approval. So like the FDA already has the majority of what it needs. Um, you know, and they say they've expedited the applications for a six month approval, but that's only starting once every single, you know, T is crossed and I is dotted, despite all this other data information and the prior application that's already out there. So with that timeline, we might not even get full approval of Pfizer until January. Like, you know, they're not bound to any deadline until January. But, you know, I, I was reading an op-ed in the New York Times, and this is Eric Topol. He's a professor of medicine at Scripps Research. He wrote this op-ed, and it begins, I'll quote it for you. Here's a paradox. A new drug for Alzheimer's disease gets approved by the Food and Drug Administration through an accelerated process without sufficient data, although there was limited evidence that it works, leading three advisory board members to resign in protest. Meanwhile, mRNA coronavirus vaccines, and those are the, the Pfizer and Moderna ones, are not yet fully licensed despite massive evidence of their benefits. This is disgusting. It's so disgusting. And it's causing people their lives. And, you know, finally, under pressure, the FDA just yesterday reassigned some staff to work on the Pfizer application that's come in for full approval. But, like, it's not enough. And it's only coming after all these people are pushing. Let's go on to another story. Hope for the left, again, in Latin America, the Peruvian election. We talked about it the last couple of weeks, Walter. 
What's new? Yeah, so Pedro Castillo has officially taken office and he has named his cabinet. This was a very, very closely watched development because Castillo, you know, essentially came out of nowhere to win the Peruvian presidential election, or at least that's how it's presented in the media. He was not a well-known national political figure, although he was very well known for his leadership in the labor movement. So there was sort of a debate going on, sort of a frantic, worried debate among elites in Peru and elites in the United States about what direction he'll take once in office. Will he be a radical, revolutionary, left-wing figure, maybe similar to Hugo Chavez in Venezuela? Or will he take a more moderate route. And so who he appoints to his cabinet was very, very closely watched for that reason as a key indicator of which route he'll go. And so the prime minister that he appointed, Guido Beido, is being viciously attacked in the Peruvian international press because he is a left-winger. He's not somebody who was chosen as a concession to the business elite. And neither were most, almost all of the cabinet choices that Castillo made. I think this is actually cause for celebration among all of those people who support a better and more just world because these cabinet choices are are very principled left-wing activists and leaders of people's movements. The Prime Minister Guido Beido is a leading member of the Peru Libre political party, the political party of Pedro Castillo. There are other cabinet members representing political forces like New Peru or Together for Peru. And these are all political organizations that, to one extent or another, root their ideological orientation, their ideological point of reference is Marxism. The foreign minister of the country that was appointed by Castillo is a former guerrilla commander. He founded a guerrilla army in his youth inspired by the Cuban Revolution. And there are many similar, you know, lifelong left-wing figures in this cabinet. So it remains to be seen, of course, what goes on next. Congress is still controlled by the right wing in Peru, and the Peruvian Congress need to approve, confirm these cabinet choices. There's also a lot of debate about what measures will be taken to regain control of the country's natural resources, especially its mineral wealth. There's the question of drafting a new constitution for the country, a central demand of the people's movement and the Castillo campaign. So uh, we'll have to see, but you know, these first early indications are very positive. Let's move on. Esther, you are you are a sports fan and you are watching the Olympics and it's impossible not to notice the again outlandish reactionary politics in terms of the way the Olympics are being covered in the media in the United States. The BS about the Olympics has always been there. There's always like, this is just this wonderful global competition between the elite athletes from different countries who get to demonstrate their skills and compete against each other to see who is the very best in the world at this or that sport. But the Olympics have always been dominated by politics. Of course, the first time the Soviet Union had a chance to organized an Olympics in the Soviet Union to host the Olympics. That was the Moscow Olympics of 1980. The United States organized an international boycott of the Olympics. And that was because in 1978, Afghanistan had a revolution and the revolution was led by socialists and they were trying to have a big literacy campaign and let girls go to school in the countryside and have a minimum wage and land reform. But because they were socialists and because they were 
diplomatically aligned with the Soviet Union, which they shared a long border with, the U.S. CIA during the Carter administration launched what was then its biggest operation ever to undo, to overthrow the socialist government of Afghanistan. And eventually the Soviet Union entered Afghanistan on the side of its socialist allies who were besieged by the CIA-led operation that, by the way, was partly led by Osama bin Laden in tandem with and financed by the CIA, leading the so-called Mujahideen against the socialist government of Afghanistan. So when the Soviets uh, moved in militarily, the United States being outraged that any country would interfere and send troops to another country, because of course the United States opposes any such thing, organized an international boycott of the Olympics. So clearly the Olympics have been a point of confrontation between progressive forces, or let's put it this way, forces that are targeted by U.S. imperialism. And when you look at the Olympics in 2021, 41 years later, you would think we were still in the middle of that same Cold War because even though Russia is no longer the Soviet Union, it's just Russia and China, you know, China is still the People's Republic of China. The coverage treats them as real enemies, and it really demonstrates the pure and reactionary politics of the media coverage of the Olympics. Anyway, Esther, your take. You're watching the games. Well, yeah, I'm a sports fan, and I love watching sports, so I still think of it as having this potential to be this really wonderful event that brings together people all over the world. I love seeing the opening ceremony, all the costumes, the cultural representations from people all over the world, because we don't really get to see that. We live in such a silo media universes, in a sense, really dictated by corporate media that doesn't really show the world. I was even remarking to someone that I hadn't seen Tokyo skyline. There are some skylines in the in Europe or the United States that we're familiar with, but I had never seen Tokyo skyline or it didn't have any memory of it. Maybe it's not memorable, but so those of us who are sports fans, we're used to even all types of issues, cultural societal issues coming up through sports racism, for example, in this country and the Olympic games have not disappointed us. Even, you know, you see the United States in this, supposed nationalist fervor about the games, really disparaging its own athletes if they're black. You know, Simone Biles has come under this tremendous attack and pressure because she had really a issue around being able to kind of function at the Olympics in terms of what they call the twisties or what they call losing your place in space and being able to safely manipulate all the equipment the way you've been able to in the past. Naomi Osaka, the Japanese and Haitian and American, I would say, tennis player, she went out in early rounds and she was vilified. And so, you know, even though Simone Biles is from here and from Texas, you had a Texas official saying that she was a disgrace. So these types of things happening combined with other issues around sexism, classism, you know, these things have really marred the games for me. In terms of the imperialist stink. I noticed it during the opening ceremonies when Samantha Guthrie needed to say as China was marching in that they were being investigated internationally for human rights violations. And that just had no place there. And it was totally out of the blue and stupid. And then you notice that in 
recent articles, like in the New York Times, the Chinese sports machine's single goal, the most goals at any cost, they really have a very poor critique of what is really an advantageous model for athletes in socialist countries where the country supports you as an athlete. You know, from a young child, if you have promise, it's not like here where you have to be rich or your family has to be in a rich community with a pool, with an Olympic-sized pool or a gymnastics club and these types of amenities for you to hone your craft. So some of that's changing here in terms of some of the Black athletes opening up facilities in the neighborhoods they came from. But still, you have that kind of coverage. You have the kind of coverage where the Wall Street Journal is talking about how we've won fewer golds than China. So that's that part, right? And then, so as far as sexism, not only is Simone Biles not being recognized really as a survivor of this really crass system of the Olympics committees where she is the only survivor of the sex abuse and rape scandal involving Larry Nassar here in the States that's competing in this Olympics, but she's been not even given credit for all that she's done for the sport and the way that that scandal pointed out how women and girls really are so sexualized in the gymnastics competitions with their uniform, the kind of skimpy clothes that they have to wear, these little leotards. So the German gymnastics team, they opted to wear a full body leotard specifically pointing out that they did not want to be sexualized as athletes during their routines and to also draw attention to the way the U.S. women were abused, sexually abused. That's something that's obvious just not being mentioned at all during this whole situation. And finally, I have to say that I enjoyed the introduction of new sports like skateboarding that brought more of an opportunity for working class young people to join in and qualify for the Olympics because you have certain sports like dressage, which is like these dancing horses, you have fencing and you have other sports that really, to me, I think water polo also, right, that are really only accessible to people who are, I would say, upper income or go to certain select schools where they have the opportunity to participate in those kind of sports. So those are the kind of things I think about as a sports fan watching the Olympics. I just want to add, I mean, I know this has been morphing over the last week, but the Simone Biles controversy, Esther, I I think can't be understated, you know, just how much pressure she has not only been under, but, you know, how much pressure has come on her since she essentially said, if I compete, there's a high risk of me, you know, getting severe injury. She's essentially drawing her boundaries, right? She's saying, I value my health more than I value, like, some sort of Olympic medal. And I value the team more than I value an Olympic medal for me. But, like, you know, many people have come out to support her to say, you know, these what's called the twisties or whatever. It's essentially they're getting lost in the air and literally losing any sense of where they are. So when she landed, you can see she looks totally turned around. Her eyes are wide. She's like, you know, completely turned around, like physically and mentally. 
And, you know, if you look on, on Twitter, there's a bunch of people who've been responding and talking about the severe injuries that they've had in gymnastics in the same situation when they've had the twisties. People have broken their necks. They've, you know, injured and bruised their backs. Like, this is not a joke. And yet, you know, there's commentators after commentator coming out saying, well, she's just not working hard enough. It's just, I hate to do it, but like if Michael Phelps had come out here and said like, I just can't like, you know, I have a broken ankle and it's just gonna do something to me to, to finish this. I just don't think he's going to get the same reaction. And, and even more than the one-on-one -on -one comparison, you know, I think the important thing too, is to think back in this particular sport of gymnastics where it's very dangerous already. And to look back, like, you know, to the way that women like female gymnasts have been treated over time. I mean, when you look back at Carrie Strug, she was, I think it was in the 1996 games. And there's, you know, that famous photo of Bela, her coach, you know, having to physically hold her to take her onto the medal stand, the podium, because she had, you know, broken her ankle and still went out to compete. Now, you know, if that had happened to Simone Biles, I hope she wouldn't have done that. I, you know, it's, it's wild that Carrie Strug went out to do that. She could have lost, she could have ripped tendons. She could have lost feeling in her foot forever. You know, these are not the, these are not good for these athletes long-term. And it's not lost on me that these women, these girls are raised working in this, taken away from their families, just like all these articles are saying about China. But it is true. Women, girls being taken away from their families at young ages to focus on this and this only and to be trained. And meanwhile, we're finding out, of course, that or we found out many years ago that at least one, we know Larry Nasser is one of them, you know, is grooming them and abusing them the whole time. I'm sure that's helpful for their goals of getting more and more and more gold medals. It's just disgusting. And the fact that Simone Biles is standing up on an international field and saying, no, I'm not doing this, I think is so incredibly courageous. Right. And, and she may have been encouraged by Naomi Osaka, who pulled out of Wimbledon and other tennis tournament tournaments because she wanted to deal with her mental health. And she said, I'm not going to play after being kind of bullied by the French Open, actually, and said, I'm not going to play. She had a, a cover story, I think, on Time magazine, really, where she wrote an essay about that. And she's drawn a lot of attention to and advocated for the mental health of athletes. Michael Phelps come to her defense and also to the defense of Simone Biles. And it's interesting you mentioned Carrie Strug and that famous incident of her competing with a broken ankle and uh, her coach carrying her off because that's what people want. It's almost like saying, remember what Carrie did? How come you can't do that? And, and yeah, like you said, good for Simone for saying, hey, no, I'm more important. My health and my well-being is more important than your expectations of me. I don't owe you anything. It's this whole thing where if a black athlete is famous and they may have some wealth, is that the idea from the U.S. media is that they owe this country something, you know? And I think that she is saying and that Naomi Osaka is saying, no, we don't owe you anything. We owe ourselves our health and our mental wellness you know, so that was definitely an important thing. But, you know, what we did mention was these veiled threats, these veiled accusations from U.S. swimmers against Russian swimmers, these veiled accusations about doping, you know, which is why the Russia team is not even called Russia in the Olympics, right? It's called the ROC. And some people are saying, well, why is it called that? It's because of this residue of this whole doping scandal and accusations, baseless accusations by the U.S. to kind of keep Russia 
penalized and under the gun at the Olympics so they can't compete fairly and can't compete as their country. But, you know, the Washington Post doing its job is alerting the American people to the danger that the Russians, in fact, are at the Olympics, even though Russia is banned. Here's the headline. Russia is banned at the Tokyo Olympics, but Russians are everywhere. Are you all scared? What a disgusting headline. Yeah, that's July 30th, Washington Post. There are 334 Russian athletes competing at the Tokyo Olympics. Plus, get this, everybody, a full complement of coaches, press agents, and other personnel, many of whom can be heard cheering and chanting at mostly empty venues. Officially, they represent not their country, which is banned because of the systematic doping abuses, but rather the Russian Olympic Committee. Now, the article goes on, and the article uses the language of ambush nationalism. So Russia is banned, but they're using Russian nationalism to ambush other people at the Olympics. And what is the manifestation of the ambush nationalism? It turns out that these Russian coaches and Russian press personnel and other Russians cheer in unison when Russian athletes win medals. Can you believe it? They actually work in unison chanting things like go Russia and they say that they like to <laughs> oh sing their God. own national anthem and this is actually described actually described in the Washington Post as ambush nationalism here again in that same Washington Post article on Wednesday according to the website around the rings a reporter asked tennis player Daniel Medvedev after his third round victory in tennis if, this is his first question to the winner, to the Russian, if he believed Russian athletes had a stigma attached to them. Quote, it's the first time in my life I'm not going to answer a question and you should be embarrassed of yourself and I think you should be out of the Olympic Games and tennis tournaments, Medvedev said, according to Around the Rings. And he said, I don't want to see you again. Well, good for him. And then as he left, he chanted, first time in my life, meaning the first time he wouldn't answer a question because here he wins, but because he's a Russian, the media, the Western media comes up and says, do you feel there's a stigma attached to you? I mean, it's so gross. This is just amazing to me for someone to talk about what's an ambush nationalism? That's what I feel like I'm experiencing every time I turn on NBC. I live around a lot of people who are not from you know, born here. And for them watching the, the Olympics, it's really disgusting. <laughs> they really, they are most sick of the Americans. And I, you know, there's an Olympics channel and I actually enjoy watching that more because I can see the sports kind of presented without this cover of jingoism, U.S. jingoism. And to put a point on this whole thing about nationalism, I think I pointed it out earlier in the editorial meeting that a Yahoo article talked about how that the U.S. women's gymnastics leotards contain 76 stars and 7,600 Swarovski crystals in a nod to American history, meaning to 1776. So down to the actual leotard. And so 
I found this actually by accident when I was looking up the statement made by the German women's gymnastics team to wear a long leotard. And then I looked below it and I see this other article and I just, I just couldn't believe it. It was just kind of, it was like the cherry on the top of all the American nationalism that I've been fed during the whole Olympics. It's been, you know, it's made me like want to root for like everybody from any athlete from Africa, any, like the, just before I started talking to you, I was cheering on the Cuban wrestler who at age 39, I think, or something, or 34, like beat out all the other people and won the gold medal or the Tunisian swimmer, the 18-year-old from Tunisia who won a gold medal swimming. I just, you know, I'm just like rooting for everybody else who comes from a poor, marginalized, typically formerly colonized country that's been like raped of all its resources and they don't have the money and the, the resources to train athletes and to, you know, give them the best accommodations and resources and everything, but still manage to produce world-class athletes. How many sporting events have I been to when you just break out into chants of USA? I mean, how often do you hear that? And that's not ambush nationalism? It's interesting, too, that when the Proud Boys beat people up here on the streets of Washington, they were chanting USA, USA, USA. And then you go to... uh, any sporting event in the United States and it's USA, USA. I mean, it's like, it all started, by the way, that whole USA, USA, USA thing started. I believe I'm correct. I could be making this up, so don't hold me to it. But I believe it began when the US hockey team finally beat the Soviet hockey team in international competition like 40 years ago for the first time. And that's when this whole USA, USA thing got started. Also, very gross. Did you notice what the Cuban boxer Julio Cesar La Cruz shouted when he won his fight. Patria y vida, no. Patria o muerte, venceremos. Yes. Very exciting. So, yeah, homeland or death, uh, we will win. That's the chant. Patria, vida, no. He defeated a Cuban-born boxer who was competing for Spain. And, of course, where the reactionary, counter-revolutionary anthem, Patria y vida, originated from a musician in Spain working, of course, in close concert with the U.S. State Department. Interesting fact about sports in Cuba. Did you know that Cubans have a constitutional right to sports? So this is Article 74 of the Cuban Constitution. People have the right to physical education, sports, and recreation as essential elements of their quality of life. The national education system guarantees the inclusion of teaching and practicing physical education and sports as an integral part of childhood, adolescent, and teenage education. The state works to guarantee the necessary resources dedicated to the promotion and practice of sports and recreation for all people, as well as for the preparation of, attention to, and development of athletic talent. Yeah, I mean, completely different type of society. Meanwhile, the U.S. education system is cutting funding for arts and music and physical education and sports. They also have the right to medicine, but they don't have medicine right now. They have the right to food and medicine and shelter. Cubans own their own homes, by the way. But the United States is strangling Cuba and then blaming socialism when Cubans can't access goods after the U.S. makes it a penalty for any country, any company, any bank to do business with Cuba. 
and it makes it illegal for Cubans who live elsewhere to send hard currency to their relatives in Cuba. Anyway, really heroic on the part of Julio Cesar La Cruz, Cuban boxer, very, very inspiring. And actually, you know, one last thing is that, you know, people continue to come to the aid of Cuba, even though Venezuela is suffering its own hardships and blockade. They just shipped 30 food containers to Cuba, along with syringes, needles, masks, and other kind of disinfectants to fight the COVID. Walter, let's go to liberationnews.org. What are your big stories this week? Of course, Liberation News. .org is a socialist news site. It's not only about news. It's not only about analysis. It's about action. It's about people struggling together, uh, like the struggles that we started talking about at the beginning of this show, the struggle for housing. Of course, we have millions of families now facing eviction, millions more facing foreclosure on top of the already vast number of homeless in this, the so-called richest country of the world. Anyway, if you want to get involved in politics, go to liberationnews.org. What's new, Walter? There is an article written by people who were on the ground at the scene of the sit-in taking place outside on the steps of Congress, organized by Representative Cory Bush, a member of the Party for Socialism and Liberation, went there, talked to people. You can read their report on liberationnews.org. The title is Support Grows for Congresswoman Holding Sit-In Versus Inaction on the Eviction Crisis. You can also check out an article, highly recommend this one. It's titled, Breaking, David Wade Prison Guards Violently Retaliate Against Hunger Strikers. Liberation News actually broke the story about this hunger strike waged by prisoners in Louisiana fighting against all sorts of abuse, mistreatment, brutality that they are receiving at the hands of prison authorities. This is an important update about that struggle. And then finally, it's the beginning of Black August. And there's an article on liberationnews.org. If you don't know what Black August is, there's an article that lays out exactly why this is such an important annual commemoration. It's titled, Study Fast, Train, Fight the Roots of Black August. So uh, you can find all of that and more on liberationnews.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter by clicking on the link at the top. We want to thank our sound engineer, John Preisner, who did a great job putting together the seven episodes on the history of China's foreign policy that included a discussion between myself and Professor Ken Hammond. That's a seven-part series, more than six hours of programming where we really do a deep dive on China's foreign policy in the decades since the 1949 coming to power of the Communist Party of China. We were able to release that this weekend. Again, we hope that will be a real resource for people who want to study China, learn about China. Of course, Ken Hammond is a true expert on China. Tomorrow, we're going to be talking as we do every Wednesday with Professor Richard Wolf. And this time we're going, as we've been talking to Professor Wolf about basic core concepts of Marxism, we're going to talk about corporate ownership of the media, how media monopolies developed, and the history of the evolution of the capitalist media. So that's Professor Richard Wolf tomorrow. On Thursday, we're joined by comedian and author, journalist, Lee Camp, who's going to be spending the entire show with us on The Real Story, where we're going to be doing a six-month assessment of Joe Biden's 
domestic and foreign policy. So stay with us the whole week here at The Socialist Program. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.